You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. I do want to open this morning with this idea. You know, we're talking about contentment today, and um, I know a lot of us, when, when we are out, just, we're just window shopping, and we come across a sale, right? And you buy stuff, and you go home, and you're like, Honey, now I'm not claiming husband, wife. I'm not, I'm not gender role in this. I'm, I'm a man of the 21st century. Honey, look at how much money I saved. Right? So I got a great analogy to help you understand what that looks like. So in, in uh, the, my TV room in my house, uh, my wife always complains that I leave the lights on. Right? Like, Apparently, I leave the lights on all the time, so I've been trying to remember to turn them off, and I walked out of the house this morning, and I had to walk back in and turn the lights off, because I forgot, but uh, trying to remember that, she's like, you never turn the lights off, but I have energy-saving light bulbs in those sockets, (laughs) so the other day, she said, Aaron, you left the lights on again. I said, look at all the energy I'm saving, (laughs) right, like when we, it's not really saving when we spend, like ever. It's not ever saving when we spend. So you can't go, look at all the money I saved. No, look at all the money you spent. That's what you did. You spent money, spent it. It was spent. And so today what I want to do is talk about contentment because I think we all struggle with contentment at some level. We're going to start with a really odd question. And that is, Did God want Israel to have a king? And our typical answer to that is immediately no. And the reason we give is because of uh, when Samuel, who was the last judge, uh, they come to Samuel and they're like, we want a king. And they choose Saul. And uh, Samuel goes to God and says, God, um, they've rejected me. And God goes, no, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me, right? And so we make this assumption. So Saul gets chosen. He's a head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He's just big. You know what? Bonus points for anybody that knows what his occupation is. He was a donkey herder. Read that in the King James, and you're going to get a real clear omen of what his kingdom is, what his kingship is like. Uh, It was not good. It was not good. And so he was a bad king. Now, question is, does God want him to have a king? And I want to read for you out of Deuteronomy chapter 17. And what we're going to look at is something that I think is particularly interesting. And then we're going to take a look at the life of Solomon and see how he did. Okay? So Deuteronomy chapter 17 It says, when you enter the land your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Now, does God want them to have a king? Sure, he doesn't care. He doesn't care, but what he wants to make sure of is that when they choose a king, that they choose a king that he chooses. Which, by the way, after Saul falls apart, God sends Um, Samuel out to choose Jesse, or Jesse's son, David, right? David is a good king. He's the guy, he's a man after God's own heart. He's the one that God chooses. You with me? So this is this dichotomy. Be sure to appoint over you uh, a king that the Lord your God chooses. And we're going to give some qualifications here. Number one, he must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. So, 
Don't put a foreigner over you. Why? Because if you do, they're going to lead you away to worship other gods. So that's, that's why. So we want to make sure that he's an Israelite. That's the first qualification. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. So if you're taking notes, put an underline on that. Um, so number two qualification, he can't get a lot of horses, especially not horses from Egypt. Why? Why not a lot, a lot of horses? Two things, military power and wealth. Okay, so horses are like, there's actually chariot cities in Israel where they would have horses and chariots. Megiddo is one of those. If you come with me to Israel, I'll show you, um, I'll show you. um, By the way, a couple of spots left on the Israel trip. If you want to go, jump in, like, come on with us. It'd be great. So he's not allowed, he's got to be an Israelite. He's not allowed to have a lot of horses, especially not horses from Egypt. Okay, Uh, for For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives. Why? It's the next phrase, by the way. (laughs) Or your heart will be led astray. So he can't have a lot of wives or his heart will be led astray. So you got to underline that. Pay attention to that. We'll see how Solomon does. And then he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Okay? So... Has to be an Israelite, can't have a lot of horses, can't have a lot of wives, can't have a lot of silver and gold. Okay, last qualification. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. So his job is to write handwritten his own copy of Torah. We did this as a staff discipline, not this last year, but the year before. It was awesome. I highly recommend if you, if you want to do something that's a really cool change up in your spiritual disciplines to write the word of God, the things that will stick out to you are astounding. You can type it. Uh, if I write two sentences, I get a hand cramp because I don't write anything anymore. I type everything. But um, get, write your own copy of Torah. Write your own copy of it. It's amazing what happens. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life. Now, here's the thing. If you take that passage just straight at face value, it doesn't say he is to read from it. It says he's supposed to read it. Every day? Every day. Here's why. Next slide. So that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of this law. So how do we know that he's read from it every day? He follows the rules, right? That's how we know. See how Solomon does with that. Follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left and then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So this is God's qualifications for a king. Written roughly, we're going to use the conservative, more mainstream evangelical number, written roughly about 1400-ish B.C., somewhere between 1450 and 1400 B.C. Um, so somewhere in that window it was written. Now Solomon um, rules in 980 B.C., 980 to 940 B.C., okay? So that's his rule. Okay, 
So Solomon, uh, Saul gets outed. He gets killed by an Amalekite, which is a phenomenal story, but um, another sermon for another day. And then David takes the throne, and he does great, and he restores peace in the kingdom, right? And then his son Solomon, who's the son of Bathsheba, that's an interesting little twist, um, Solomon takes the throne. And Solomon begins kind of at this anointing ceremony at Gibeon. And I want to introduce you to Solomon at the beginning of his kingdom with this passage where the Lord comes to him. So let's read 1 Kings chapter 3. It says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during a night in a dream. And God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Like that's an interesting insight because most young men don't have the insight to know that they have no clue what they're doing. They're like, yeah, I got this figured out. It's like, ask a single person who hasn't had kids how to parent. They'll give you all kinds of opinions, right? And then they'll have kids. And then they'll just be happy to put their clothes on in the morning, like all the rest of us, (laughs) right? And then it'll match sometimes. You'll even match. But all your clothes will have puke stains on them. And guess what? What's more is, you won't care. (laughs) Um, your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. What a brilliant request, right? So let's keep reading. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice. What is justice? What's the, what's the Hebrew word? Say it. Mishpat. Peter gets bonus points. Mishpat. It means distributive justice. It is, it's the king is responsible to make sure that no one in his country is taken advantage of. That's his job. Fundamentally, God is saying, because that's what you chose, which by the way is central to who we are supposed to be as people in the kingdom of God. Because that's what you cared about, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Now I gotta tell you a funny story. I have a friend named Kelly Hughes. He owned a bar at Stateline called Kelly's. Not a very creative name, but pretty much if you drank a beer in North Idaho, you know Kelly's bar. Um, Kelly's uh, bar became like a really big deal because what he would do is he would bring in these big name country acts and then his band, the Kelly Hughes band, would open for these big name country acts. And so he was just, it's a very big deal. Anyway, uh, so Kelly um, gave his life to Christ uh, listening to a Larry Burkett financial series. And uh, it was interesting because he's listening to this series alone in his living room and he gets to the last session and Larry Burkett says, listen, all these principles are good, but if you don't have Jesus in your life, you don't have the power to carry it off. And so right there in his living room, he gets down on his knees and gives his life to Jesus. Not a clue what he's doing, what he's in for, what does it mean, what's the implications, none of it. Um, So he finds a church 
any old church. It happens to be Real Life Ministries. Walks through the door, and I get introduced to him, and he starts, he's, he, this is my impression of Kelly Hughes. He's like, I got all these questions. That's what he says. I got all these questions. I said, okay. When it starts rapid firing me all these questions, and I'm like, okay, time out, time out, time out. Tell me your story. Just tell me, like, who, who even are you? Because <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but I'm not a big bar hopper. Um, so uh, he tells me the story of, he's listening to this Larry Burkett series, and he says all along the way, um, that he would sprinkle these things called proverbs in the, in the sessions. He's like, I don't know who wrote that, but he's like the smartest guy that ever lived. <laughs> like he doesn't even know what he's saying, right? I was like, well, as a matter of fact, um, yes, <laughs> yes, he was. So there's not gonna be anyone like him before or after. He's brilliant. Moreover, I will give you what you've not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me, and this is important, if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I'll give you a long life. So this is God's promise to Solomon. And we know that he gets started in his kingdom, and there's this story, these two ladies are like, it's my baby, it's my baby. And Solomon's like, I got a solution, cut it in half. To which we go, oh, such wisdom, or sadistic. I don't know. You pick, right? You pick whichever one you think. But um, and all of his reputation spread all over the world. Like, people are like, wow, you're so smart, Solomon. Your wisdom, holy moly. Your wisdom. I don't want to get all technical on you. I would give you the Hebrew, but I don't want to, you know, dazzle you. Um, Holy moly. That's how it is in Hebrew. <laughs> oh, it's funny. So his wisdom spread so much that a gal that's called the Queen of Sheba, which is around Ethiopia. By the way, there's this really interesting theory about where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's actually, um, it's got some substance to it. We can't prove it definitively where the Ark is. Nobody knows where the Ark is. But that, that the Queen of Sheba um, the, their religious books say that the Queen of Sheba and Solomon um, became lovers and had a son, and that that son took the ark back to Ethiopia. And so that's one of the possible resting places. They, they believe it's in one of the buildings, but you can't ever get in there. Anyways, um, so she comes to meet Solomon because she's heard of all of his crazy wisdom. And so I want to pick up the story there because what we're going to see is what did she come for and, and what did she want to take from him and what did she not see? Okay, because these are all important pieces. So let's read 1 Kings 10. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. And arriving in Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind, which is probably a lot. I mean, she probably had a lot of things on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace that he built, now pay attention to what she's noticing. Is she, saying, is she noticing his God? Is he putting his God on display or his wealth and his wisdom? 
The food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, not to the Lord or for the Lord or anything like that, but the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord. She was overwhelmed. And she said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report that I heard. What is she paying attention to? Wisdom and wealth. Where is his conversation with God in any of this? Where is she going, oh my goodness, your God is amazing to have blessed you this way? Where is that conversation? It's not happening. Why? Because Solomon has this insatiable need to expand his own empire. It, it will plague him through his whole kingship. He has this insatiable need to keep amassing more and more and more. And so what he does is he takes a census of all the foreigners in his land and he taxes them more heavily and he makes them do the hard labor. Which doesn't sound very much like Mishpat. That doesn't sound very much like God's king. And so all of a sudden we start to see Solomon chasing wealth and power and not the reputation of God. And that's a bad thing. Now we're going to skip a little bit of 1 Kings 10. And we're going to pick up the story later on in 1 Kings 10. And, and what I want, to, I want to show you a tax, the annual tax that Solomon takes. Let's look at it. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. You can go, wow, that's such a coincidence. Yeah, yeah it's not a coincidence. <laughs> For the record, nothing in the scripture is a coincidence. What the author is trying to say to you is that the way in which he was collecting his tax was evil. And it's important for us to grab a hold of that because Solomon, who was supposed to be God's king, who had every opportunity to succeed, is starting down a path of real destruction. Not including the revenues of merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and governors of the territories. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. What is he not supposed to accumulate? A lot of gold. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold because don't you need that? Like, we all need one of those. And the throne had six steps, and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each one of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold. <laughs> Bring me the gold goblet. Like... And all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered a little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, it returned, carrying gold and silver and ivory and apes and baboons. Because... <laughs> 
I don't know, because maybe Solomon's into primates. I don't know. He's like, gold goblet, bring me the baboon. (laughs) I don't know. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. What's he not supposed to accumulate for himself? Riches. The whole world saw an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone came, brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, and horses and mules. What is he also not supposed to accumulate? Yeah, so check this out. Especially not from where? From Egypt. Okay. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And that's saying something, because there's a lot of rock there. By the way, it's the only building material in Jerusalem. You're actually required by law to use what's called Jerusalem stone. You're not allowed to build with anything else. You can only build with stone. That's how much rock is still there today. Not, Not a tree to save your life, but there's a lot of stones. Silver as common as stones. And cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. No, come on, Solomon. And Q, the royal merchants purchased them from Q at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And they also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. Now, let's look at this so far. How is he doing How is he doing? So, not supposed to accumulate a lot of wealth. How's he doing on that? Not so good. Not supposed to accumulate a lot of horses, especially not ones from Egypt. How's he doing on that? Not so good. So we have three left. He has to be an Israelite. (laughs) Like, that's the one he doesn't get to pick. He has to write his own copy of Torah. We know that because... He follows the rules. We know that he does that because he follows the rules. And he's not allowed to have a lot of wives. Let's pick up the story. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Come on. Women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Where's Pharaoh's daughter from? Egypt. Mm. Moabites and Ammonites. Now, if you were going to pick two tribes to never compromise on, those are the two. If you remember the story, Job and his wife and his two daughters were leaving Sodom as it was getting destroyed, right? Then his wife gets all salty about leaving, and then they move. (laughs) And then they go up in the hills and the daughters think that they're the only three people left on the earth. They're like, how are we going to repopulate the earth? So they get their dad drunk and have sex with him and they each get pregnant. One of them gets pregnant and has a son named Moab. The other one gets pregnant and has a son named Ammon. And so God says, especially not those. Those were conceived in some yucky, distorted yuck. We don't, we don't ever want to be a part of those nationalities. In fact, if you intermarry with a Moabite or an Ammonite, you're not allowed to enter the, the temple for 10 generations of your family line. They're not messing. Solomon's got wives from there. 
Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. A concubine is a love slave. 700 wives and 300 concubines. I can't even handle the one wife I got. I, I told her, baby, you're worth a thousand women to me. 700 wives and 300 porcupines. Can you believe that's crazy? Like the grocery bill. That's ridiculous. And what did they do? And his wives led him astray. God said it was going to happen 500 years before it happened. Surprise! God knows what he's talking about. You should totally follow him. Let's keep reading. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as God as the, father, as the heart of, fathers of David his father had been. He followed Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Now let me, this is PG-13, just in advance. Ashereth was a large pole that had a carving of a penis on top of it. And the way that you worshipped Ashereth was that you had sex at the bottom of the pole out in public with temple prostitutes. That's going on in God's holy city allowed and made possible by God's king. And Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Let me tell you about Moloch. Moloch is a large metal statue that has arms like this that stick out. And you build a fire underneath the arms until they glow red. And then they would take your firstborn child and throw it into the arms of Moloch. How do you get from sacrifice and humility and God, I just want to We'll honor you and rule your kingdom well to child sacrifice. Women. <laughs> In 26 years of ministry, that's my best joke. <laughs> it is all downhill from here. <laughs> I've been waiting the whole sermon to give that one to you guys. That's good. Whew. How do you get there? Like, how do you move so far? How do you, and I, and I know that we can sit here and go, man, I would never, I would never do that. I would never, how do you, how do you get so, I would never do that. You can say that, but here's the reality. What Solomon proves is, no matter how smart you think you are, if you don't practice contentment in your life, there is no end to the amount of corruption that will happen. It's the reality of what we do as followers of God. You either trust him that he's given you enough or you don't. That's how you, it's scary. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord and he did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. 
On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Hamash, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods in the holy city. And the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And I know so many people that have come to me and said, if God would just show up and tell me what he wants, I would do it. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. God's already told you what he wants. It's in the word of God. You should read it. If you won't follow that, you won't follow even if God himself shows up and tells you what he wants. Now, Paul picks up on this idea of, com- of contentment in the New Testament. I want to give you a couple of passages quickly here. 1 Timothy 6 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now he doesn't say having money is evil, he says loving money is evil. And that's a tension for us. Because a lot of us are like, man, I, I, I know this old saying, everybody knows money won't buy you happiness, but everybody seems to be willing to give it a second chance. Right? Like, we all know money isn't gonna bring us happiness, but we all wanna pursue it because we think, man, if I, just had, if I just had more money, if I just had more money, I would, I would, no. If you understand who your God is, that's when you can be content. And so what I wanna do today to tie things down is I wanna wrestle with probably the third most misquoted verse in the entire Bible. Okay, Philippians chapter four. Now Paul's in prison, and this isn't prison like we think of prison. Our prisons are really nice. Like, they get a nice comfortable bed and good meals. And, like, I'm not saying it's fun to be in a cell all day, but it's nothing like this. This is dungeon, dank, moldy, infection, torture, beating, shackles, stocks, that kind of, that's what, maybe you get fed, maybe once a day. That's the kind of prison that we're talking about. That's where Paul is when he writes this. I greatly rejoiced in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13, oh my goodness. And I've heard so many, especially like athletes, like I just prayed, God give me strength, and he did, man, because I had this insurmountable thing, and, then he, and I prayed for strength, and he gave it, because Philippians 4.13, that is not what that verse is talking about at all. And so what happens is you go to a football game and the two teams run out on the field and part of this team goes into their end zone and prays and part of this team goes into their end zone and prays and they both pray, Lord, help us to win. And God is not going to answer one of those prayers. (laughs) And by the way, a 50-50 shot on getting your prayer answered by God isn't faith. That verse isn't saying, hey, if you have a hard task, pray to God for strength. That verse is saying, when you take everything away, is Jesus enough for you? 
You strip all of all the peripherals of your life away. Is Jesus enough? How you answer that question is the key to understanding contentment in all circumstances. I just think too many of us get caught up. We want Jesus and. And our cars and our house and our status and our life and our career and our whatever, our influence. We want Jesus and whatever. And I think that perhaps what contentment invites us to consider is that we put Jesus first and then whatever happens, happens. I love the illustration that um, Sarah used. The give bucket needs to be in the front before the spin bucket. It needs to be there. And with that in mind, we're gonna move towards the Lord's table. So if you're new here, we take communion together every week. And um, you're, if anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to take communion with us. But we want you to hold those elements till the end and we will take them all together. Now, while they're passing that stuff out, uh, I want to work through a few implications of our message. And there's probably a lot of different spaces where you would go, man, I was thinking of this, and it makes me think of that, and I'm applying it here in my life maybe, or that, if that thought or that idea impacts this intersection in my life. All of that is good, and the Holy Spirit works on us exactly where we need for him to work on us with those messages. What I want to propose is here are... Uh, four questions that I think we need to be asking ourselves and they're important enough that we've made them our home group questions for the week. So uh, as they're passing that out, I want us to consider uh, some of these four questions. Question number one, what do you think about God's qualifications for a king in Deuteronomy? Are they reasonable? And before you go, well, yeah, I mean, he's God. He gets to say whatever he wants, right? Like, think about this. Put yourself in their position. Would you want a king without a strong military? Like that seems to be kind of a high American value. If you were king, would you not accumulate wealth for yourself? Like, are, is it reasonable? Like think about Solomon. He had five qualifications and the only one he got right was the one he couldn't choose. It's interesting to me. He must have not thought they were reasonable. Question number two. What factors do you suppose contributed to the shift in Solomon's thinking as he aged? And what happened? And I think it's important for us to wrestle with those ideas because if we don't, then what we fall into the danger of is missing how our own journey down the path of apathy and compromise happens. When we can wrestle with how it happened to Solomon, the good news is we don't have to walk the same path. I think, you know, I, find, I hate it when I find areas in my life where my convictions, like I, I, I say that they're true, but I live to compromise them. It's hard. Question number three. What does Paul mean when he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives him strength? What does he mean when he says that? And then last question. In what areas of your life are you not contented enough right now? I know that we all have like levels of contentment. Like I'm 
pretty, everything's good, you know, pretty good. But I would also say that if we're honest, we don't have to look very far before we go, I'm really not happy here. I'm really not satisfied with this. What is this for you? Whatever this is, you're going to have to measure that against the word of God. What does God say? And for some of us, it's super noble. Like, I'm not contented with where my kids are at, or I'm not contented with where my relationship is with my wife or my husband, and I want to I wanna commit myself to being a better person for them. That would be noble. A lack of contentment would say, I'm not happy in my marriage, and I demand you change so that I can be happy. By the way, that's not just a lack of commitment. Um, that's a, abusive. So knock it off. There's a really good word in the Bible for that. It's called sin. I wouldn't want to have any part of that. Like for all my wife's ups and downs with me and that we've had together, we've had lots of ups and downs. Um, she's always been awesome about a, giving me the freedom to work through my own stuff at my own pace. She's amazing. Like, I'm really sorry, guys. I got, I got her. Um, it's important for us to recognize that. Like we all have, there's a difference between a noble dissatisfaction and just a simple lack of commitment, lack of contentment. This, this idea of communion invites us into this way of thinking about laying our life down so that those around us can be better. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body. Just give them for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and thank you that you are the God of more than enough. And then whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we can be content knowing that you are all we need. And like Paul says, if we have food and clothing, it'll be enough. And so God, I just ask that you would stir our hearts in the places where we lack contentment so that we can begin to scrub those places in our heart through the washing of your word and the regeneration of your spirit. God, thank you for your patience and your grace as we wrestle through this stuff. In your name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you enjoyed this message, make sure you check out the new podcast from our lead pastor, Aaron Couch, called A Better Conversation. Search for it on our website, iTunes, and the Google Play Store.